All right, well, let's look to our Bible study. Some of you are new. We're going through the Gospel of Mark that's in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those four Gospels have like different underlying themes to them. And the Gospel of Mark, as you see on the top of your notes, portrays Christ as the servant. Christ the servant, the one who came and just gave his life uh, for others. And before I talk about Christ and his word, we uh, went to the funeral today for Pastor Larry Williams. Uh, and you talk about a servant, uh, him and his wife, Pauline. Uh, I tell you, when, when God can get a man and a woman together and marriage and they're, they're, they're on the same page and they just want to do God's will and nothing else, it is amazing what God can accomplish with a couple like that and then all the people that joined with them. And to see the, the church and the 21-acre campus and the dormitories and the college and the Christian school and the bus ministry and all these things he did. He was a pastor for 41 years. The last year he wasn't able to do too much. I guess he really suffered this last year with cancer. Uh, but boy, I'll tell you, that guy did not waste his life. And his wife didn't, and they were just servants. He was one of the kindest. The, the whole church was packed today. I don't know if there was 300 people there or not, but I know there was about 44 pastors that uh, showed up to honor uh, him. And uh, what a life. That guy was one of the, mo the most gentle, one of the most gentlemen I've ever met, literally a gentleman. Kind. I never, ever in my life heard him say one bad thing about anybody, ever, behind their back or anything. When the Bible says, speak evil of no man, he took that literally. He, you could never, ever accuse him of, of saying anything bad about anybody. And he was so kind and gracious, and uh, he was such a blessing to my wife and I on many uh, occasions. And I looked up to him, I really did. And he was a servant. Now, Christ the servant, we see that, plus a lot of other things in Mark about the Lord. So, And then we take these portions of Scripture, we try to get through them in one Wednesday night. And so, the first section we're going to see is verses 30, 31, and verse 32. And uh, we'll just call this section, The Crucifixion Not Understood. The Crucifixion Not Understood. Verse 30 says, And they parted thence, and passed through Galilee, and he would not that any man should know it. For he taught his disciples and said unto them, The Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after that he is killed, he shall rise the third day. But they understood not that saying, and were afraid to ask him. And so in verse 30, he didn't want anybody around. Uh, as they were traveling to their next location of ministry, Jesus didn't want anybody around. He wanted a private audience with his disciples, verse 31. And what did he talk about in the way? He talked about the gospel. The gospel. He's trying to make that clear. He says, men, this is what's going to happen. The Son of Man, whenever you read that, he's talking about himself. He never called himself Jesus. He never called himself Christ. He never called himself Messiah. He never called himself Lord. 
he called, well, he did call himself Lord, but he, he called himself the Son of Man. He never used his name Jesus except once while praying. Eighty-five times he referred to himself as the Son of Man, which refers to him taking on humanity and uh, being just like us, uh, living in the flesh, God in the flesh. But he's talking about himself. He says, the Son of Man is delivered into the hands of men, and they shall kill him. And after he is killed, he shall rise the third day. He made that so clear, as I've said before. He made that so clear that his enemies could quote it perfectly when they went before uh, Pilate and said, they said, we heard that deceiver say that he was going to, that's why they appointed a guard at the tomb for three days, because they knew exactly what he taught. So he says, well, you guys watch the guard, uh, tomb for three days, and then when his dead body's in there after three days, don't worry about it. He's a hoax. We never have to worry about him again. And so they put a guard, 16 soldiers there, at the tomb where Jesus' dead body was laid after his crucifixion. And of course, three days later, he rose from the grave. And he's alive forevermore. And the soldiers, they, they didn't know, they were paid off to lie. And uh, everybody admitted that the grave was empty. Jesus had risen from the dead. But at this time, verse 32 says, they understood not that saying and were afraid uh, to ask him. And I just want to say this. It's always too bad if we get afraid to ask God something. Now, a lot of people are like them. A lot of people are afraid to say, God, what do you want me to do? Boy, that, that frightens them to think of asking because he might show them. <laughs> and it would be a wonderful thing to find that out in your life. Uh, it should not be something we're afraid of. Don't be afraid to ask God questions. They could have said, Lord, what do you mean you're going to be killed and you're going to rise the third day? And they, they could have had more understanding. But even when the day came, they were confused and fearful and frightful. And they were hiding somewhere in a room. And uh, they thought all hope was lost uh, until the third day when they heard the news from the ladies that the tomb was empty. And they went down and it began to be revealed to him, hey, he spoke the truth. He did rise from the grave. He is alive forevermore. But, but maybe if they'd have asked a question, they may have understood better and got through that season. Don't be afraid to ask God anything. Don't be afraid to ask God anything. I mean, if you come across the Bible verse and say, God, I do not understand that. I do not understand that. Or, Lord, I don't know why you do this. And, He's not afraid of our questions. He's not afraid to answer our questions. We've got to ask him. We've got to ask him our questions. In verses 33 through 37, we see the disputing of the disciples. Now, you would think after their leader just said, I'm going to be killed and rise the third day, they would be careful about that. I wonder what's that about. But instead, they, just start, they start discussing who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. Verse 33, and he came to Capernaum, and being in the house, he asked them, what was it that you disputed among yourselves, by the way? So God does ask us hard questions, doesn't he? If you don't believe that, start reading in Job, chapter 38, 39, 40, 41, 42, and just see where, where God just drills Job with questions, because he thought he knew it all. Turns out he didn't know anything. And... Uh, 
God will ask us hard questions. What was it that you disputed among yourselves by the way? Did they answer them? Nope, they didn't answer him. Verse 34, but they held their peace. Why? For by the way they had disputed among themselves who should be the greatest. Now on the back side of your notes, we got uh, Spurgeon's comment here on verse 34. Spurgeon wrote in his notes back in the 1800s, it was a dreadful descent from communing with Moses and Elijah on the Mount of Transfiguration to meeting the furious demon at the foot of the hill. But this looks like a far greater descent from the self-sacrificing of the divine master to the petty jealousies and self-seeking of his chosen servants. Oh, sometimes it makes our hearts sick when we have been almost lost in rapturous meditation, when we have been taken up near to heaven in communion with the Lord, and then we have to attend to some paltry squabble between two brothers or two sisters. It does seem such a terrible come down. Isn't that the truth? So do you think things in the 1800s were like they were today? Do you think people were the same back then? Have you ever been that way where you just say, you just say man, I've just enjoyed the presence of the Lord. And then somebody says, these two aren't getting along. These two are fighting about this, these petty little jealousies. So that's why God, I guess, puts this into the Bible. Um, he, he says great things about these disciples, and he says bad things about them. The same thing with you and me. It's going to be that way with you and me. Uh, he'll, he'll, it says, then shall every man have praise of God, but then all, we're going to, he's going to bring out the faults too. So here they are, and they, they've just heard about the self-sacrifice of their Savior, their leader in verse 31. They're going to kill me, and I'm going to rise the third day. And they go on to discuss, which of us is going to be the greatest? And you can just imagine them, 12, saying, well, of course it's going to be me. It's so sad uh, sometimes. Turn to 1 Corinthians 13, 11, if you want to use your Bible tonight. 1 Corinthians 13, 11 says this, When I was a child, I spake as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child, but when I became a man, I put away childish things. Look, petty jealousies and envies are childish things. Those are not manly things. It's childish things. And I hate to say it, but I've been in conversations where I've heard pastors like that, determining who is greatest, who is best, which Bible college was best. Just petty jealousies and that God doesn't care a thing about. They get all in the flesh about, and it, it, it's sad. So, this is a teachable moment. So, notice what our Lord does in verse 35. This is pretty good. And he sat down and called the twelve and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all, and servant of all. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them, and when he had taken him in his arms... He said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name, 
receiveth me, and whosoever shall receive me, receiveth not me, but him that sent me. So notice he answers the question, and then he gives an illustration. That's good teaching right there. That's a good teaching method. He sat down and called the twelve, and saith unto them, If any man desire to be first, the same shall be last of all and servant of all. Well, there might be some misunderstanding of what he means by that until he says this, Go work with children. Go work with children, you tough guys. You guys that want to be first in heaven. Uh, you guys that are disputing who's going to be the greatest. Go, go work with some kids. And he took a child and set him in the midst of them. And when he had taken him in his arms, that must have been precious for that child. He said unto them, Whosoever shall receive one of such children in my name receiveth me. He says, You want to serve me? Minister to a child. When you receive a child, you receive me. He says, if you want to, you know, I guess the word is efficaciously, serve me, minister to children. I'm not there. I'm in heaven. But if you want to serve Christ on earth, help, help a kid. Minister to a child. And um, because if you receive one such child in my name, you receive me. And whosoever receiveth me, receiveth him that sent me. Now, who is that? That's the Father. And so he says, if you, want, if, you want to, if you want to do something in your life where you're ministering to me and to the Heavenly Father, find some children and minister to them. Now, why would he say that? Well, 85% of the children, or the, of those who get saved, basically, I don't know if the... Percentage is still the same, but usually get saved by the time they're 14 or under, about 85. That's usually the statistic that's quoted from studies. When Brother Botrell was here at uh, Countryside, he said that only one in 700,000 people over the age of 65 get saved. Did you ever lead one to Christ? Over 65? Man, by then they know it all. I think by then they've grieved the Holy Ghost so many times. He just says, I'll go work on some children. Now, that doesn't mean they can't get saved. But they gotta, the Bible says, humble themselves as a child and become converted. Because usually in their teen years, 20s, 30s, they think they got it all figured out. They don't need God. We've, I've learned how to live without them. Uh, and by the time they're in their 60s, man, they're just like hardened, just hardened. It's so rare you'll ever see a con convert that age. Now, we had a man here lift his hand Sunday morning and said he trusted Christ as a Savior. He was probably about 70. I'm looking forward to going and visiting him and finding out about his decision. And uh, why did you raise your hand? Um, I hope it's because it was what was in his heart. Um, but he's attended for about a year, and he's heard a lot, so maybe it's real. I hope so. But if you can just get involved with children, vacation Bible schools, kids clubs, Sunday schools, bus ministries, uh, children's churches, child evangelism fellowship, or whatever, man, you'll take a lot of people to heaven with you. And uh, you'll 
you will be showing greatness. That's what greatness is, is being a servant. Being a servant, because usually those people that work with children don't get much praise in this life, but God's watching. And boy, so many of those kids get saved. Like at camp, somebody said a bunch of kids got saved last week. Hallelujah. And one of them was, was from our church in, in Countryside. And I'm looking forward to talking to her about that too. Well, the next story we come up, these disciples go from bad to worse. Uh, we now see the intolerance of the disciples. Verse 38, And John answered him, saying, Master, we saw one casting out devils in thy name, and he followeth not us, and we forbade him because he followeth not us. Isn't that wonderful what we did for you today? I don't know what they said. They went up to this guy and said, Hey, knock it off. Who do you think you are? Can you imagine that, stopping a guy who was casting out devils in Jesus' name? Hey, you're not one of us. Knock it off. No more. All right? And they come back and tell Jesus. Like Jesus would be thrilled. Well, verse 39, But Jesus said, Forbid him not, for there is no man which shall do a miracle in my name that can lightly speak evil of me. For he that is not against us is on our part. And so here Jesus teaches tolerance for others who are doing the Lord's work. There's a lot of others besides us. And some of them are doing a lot better than us, doing the Lord's work. We've got to be careful. We never come to that place where we think we're the only ones that are right or the only ones that God can use. That's a pathetic bunch. Look on the other side uh, on verse 38. And uh, here's what Spurgeon said. He said, John did it, I dare say, in love to his master, but not in the love of his master. He did it, no doubt, with the desire to honor his master, but he did not honor his master by what he did. Okay, John came back and thought, I better report this. Hey, Lord, we really helped you out today. There was a guy casting out devils. In your name, and we told him, hey, you're not of us. All right, stop it. We forbid him. Imagine that. We forbid you to do this. And they tell Jesus. Now, verse 39, Spurgeon says this, Thus, after having conversed with Moses and Elijah, the master had to talk with these childish men who had fallen out among themselves and fallen out with other people. And that's sad. <laughs> I'm glad it's in the Bible, though, because sometimes I'm pathetic, too. But <laughs> he stuck with these guys, though, didn't he? And he really used them. So, But they're pathetic here with uh, these, these two different stories. And so that, 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 that is quite a statement. They're up on the Mount of Transfiguration. There's Moses. There's Elijah. There's Jesus glistering white as the sun. The Bible says we're like looking into the sun. They're in that glorious, holy, sacred moment, and then they come down and start arguing over who's the best, who's going to be the greatest, and, this, and showing intolerance towards this other guy that didn't belong to their group. So uh, I'm glad for those insights from Spurgeon. May they be uh, spotlights on our hearts, too. You know, there's others besides us. At the funeral today, I sat right in front of a guy who's been a free Methodist preacher for uh, 50 years. Free Methodist. You know why I was there? Because Larry Williams was his friend all the time. 
Larry Williams, an independent fundamental Baptist preacher, was that guy's friend all the time he was there. Had some good fellowship with him. Because I got there like 45 minutes before, so we just talked. And man, the Lord has used that guy. There's a lot of good free Methodists. Uh, there's a lot of them around Gwanda, and uh, they love the Lord. They're preaching the gospel, getting people saved. And I've, I've met all kinds of people, Methodists and Presbyterians and, and uh, Charismatics and Pentecostals who, who really have a born-again testimony and are trying to get other people saved and all kinds of parachurch organizations. Uh, one guy at the funeral was telling me about the Navigators and how it helped disciple him when he was growing up. And I said, I remember that group from the 70s, man, they discipled a lot of people with a lot of literature. A lot of people really got grounded. You know, and we might not fellowship with a, a ministry like that, but boy, has God used them. So we got to be careful about intolerance. There's others, we don't have to go join them. And, 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 uh, but just think even around this area, some of the parachurch organizations like Jericho Road and, uh, you know, Child Evangelism uh, Fellowship and Food Banks and City Mission and I remember Grace and Hope Mission and, and uh, Salvation Army. Some of those parachurch organizations are, are just staffed with wonderful, God-loving, God-fearing, born-again Christians getting people saved. And uh, just let them go, man. Just let them go. Just, just say, praise the Lord. Guy was in my office last, yesterday. Uh, he says, hey, we're, we're with uh, Farmers for Christ International. And we're going to have a booth this year at the Eden Corn Festival. And uh, every day we're going to be there witnessing the people. And he showed me the walking stick. They give out walking sticks with the beads on them. You've seen these, John? They've been around, you know, the, the, uh, and the beads are the colored beads, wordless book. And he says, you know, this is what we're going to do. We're going to talk to people. He says, do any of your folks want to help? And uh, I, I told him, well, we'll try to get back to you on that. But uh, I'm glad for them. There are going to be thousands of people walking through the Eden Corn Festival. And there will be at least one witness there. It won't be us. But praise the Lord for them. Praise the Lord. Let's not be like these guys. Remember uh, Joshua over in Numbers chapter 11. Uh, there were a couple guys uh, in uh, jo uh, Numbers chapter 11. And, and Joshua was... Moses minister, he was like second, he was, he was ministering to Moses. Moses was the leader of Israel at the time. And Moses went out, and I'm reading in Numbers 11:24, <clears throat> and told the people the words of the Lord, and gathered the 70 men of the elders of the people, and set them round about the tab tabernacle. And the Lord came down in a cloud and spake unto him, and took of the spirit that was upon him, and gave it unto the 70 elders. And it came to pass that when the spirit rested upon them, they prophesied, and they ceased not. But there remained two of the men in the camp. The name of the one was Eldad, and the name of the other Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. And they were of them that were written, but went not out into the tabernacle. And they prophesied in the camp. And there ran a young man and told Moses, and said, Eldad and Medad do prophesy in the camp, and Joshua, the son of Nun, the servant of Moses, one of the young men answered and said, My Lord Moses, forbid them. Sounds just like the same story, only this is the Old Testament equivalent of the New Testament. 
Moses, for he was so wise. And Moses said unto him, Envious thou for my sake, would God that all the Lord's people were prophets, and that the Lord would put his spirit upon him. What do you say? Leave him alone, Joshua. I wish everybody was like those two. They didn't come to the tabernacle. But let them alone. They're out in the camp. They're helping people. They're prophesying. The Spirit of God is upon them, even though they don't come into the tabernacle. You know, once in a while, the Lord throws us a curveball, especially when we think we know it all. And we got it all down. We got it all boxed in. Every T is crossed and every die is dotted. And then you come across a verse like this. Second Chronicles chapter 27 and verses 1 and 2. Jotham was 20 and 5 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem, and his mother's name was Jerusha, the daughter of Zadak. And he did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, according to all that his father Uzziah did, howbeit he entered not into the temple of the Lord. Boy, that kind of just rattles your doctrine a little bit. Once in a while, God just sticks something in there for those who think they got it all figured out and says, now, what about this guy? Jotham. He did that which was right in the sight of the Lord, howbeit he didn't go into the temple. Boy, what do you do with that? You scratch your head. That's what you do with that. Now, you and I believe in church. We believe in the local church. We believe in church attendance. I mean, there's uh, hundreds of verses in the, Old, in the New Testament you'd have to ignore to not come up with that conclusion. And yet, there's people I know that don't go to church who are probably better witnesses than most of the members of this church. Probably pass out more tracts and gospel literature than most of the members of this church do. You know what I do? Just let them go. I'll let the Lord sort it out on the judgment day. Um, every man will receive his own reward according to his own labor. And um, so I encourage people to be members of the local church, but hey, somebody's out there. I'm not going, but boy, they're doing the Lord's work. That's fine. Amen. God bless them. Tolerance for others there in verses 38 and 39. Well, we've got to finish up here. There's, there's more. Verse 41, For whosoever shall give you a cup of water to drink in my name, because you belong to Christ, verily I say unto you, he shall not lose his reward. So if there's somebody out there with a food bank or something, they're giving out food, they're giving out drink or something, maybe they don't go to church, but they're doing it in the name of Christ. All right, leave them alone. Leave them alone. Praise the Lord for them. Maybe they'll come to church sometime. That'd be great, wouldn't it? Uh, but uh, they're out there doing the work of the Lord. And uh, so sometimes we've got to be careful about being dogmatic that there's only one way, and that's our way. Uh, but, you know, on the other hand, stick to sound doctrine and practice. Don't change because of them. Well... As far as I'm concerned, these are some of the most sobering words Christ ever said in verses 43 through 48. In verse uh, 
42, he says, Whosoever shall offend one of these little ones that believe in me, it is better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea. What a severe penalty for somebody who hurts one of God's children or causes him to stumble. That's what the word offend means. To offend means to cause to stumble. So here's some unbeliever and he leads somebody somebody astray, away from God, away from the church, away from the Lord, and into something sinful. The Lord said it would be better for that man that a millstone were hanged about his neck and he were cast into the sea than it would be for him to face God on the judgment. And uh, he also reworded that in another gospel about children, those who introduce children to sin. Boy, I'll tell you what, man, in the eyes of God, that person is in big trouble. A millstone is a big, huge stone that was tipped down, had a hole in the middle of it. You know what it is, right? Had wood attached to it, and an oxen would just go in circles all day, turning that millstone. They'd pour grain in the hole, and the millstone would crush the grain, and flour, powder would come out called flour. Jesus said it'd be better if you just took that millstone, put a big chain around it, put it around somebody's neck, and threw the guy in the ocean. Then when I get my hands on him, on the judgment, don't you ever introduce children to playing cards, gambling, pornography, smoking, drinking, these... uh, some of these filthy videos and, and, and uh, movies and TV shows and perverted lifestyles. Don't you be the one. They're going to they're gonna hear it from somebody, but don't you be the one. Don't be the one that ever introduces a kid to profanity and filthy conversations and so on. You just be the one who introduces kids to the good stuff to the Lord, and to the Bible. Because these verses here now talk about the lost. And Jesus says to them, If thy hand offend thee, verse 43, cut it off. It is better for thee to enter into life maimed than having two hands to go into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched. And uh, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy foot offend thee, cut it off, for it is better for thee to enter enter halt into life than having two feet to be cast into hell, into the fire that never shall be quenched, where their worm dieth not, and the fire is not quenched. And if thy eye offend thee, pluck it out. It is better for thee to enter into the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell fire. Um, You know, there's no way of getting around this here. Uh, The fire that shall never be quenched. One, two, three, four, five times. In Matthew chapter 18 and verse 8, Matthew 25 and verse 41, it's called everlasting fire. There's no way. I mean, there's people trying to skirt around this. Billy Graham, people like that, tried to skirt around the doctrine of hell so it wouldn't be so offensive. There's no way to skirt around it. 
It's fire that will never be quenched, and it's everlasting fire. And Jesus is saying to people here, you better do whatever you got to do, no matter how drastic it is. You better do it and make sure you get saved. And it'd be better for you to enter into life without that thing than to go to hell with it, into a fire that shall never be quenched. Now, Jesus, and this is true, I've, I've studied the Bible. Some of you have before. You've heard this before. There is no other prophet in all the scriptures who spoke about hell more than Jesus Christ did. And he believed in it so much, he went all the way to the cross and died a violent death to save you and I from going there. That's how much he believed in it. We need to believe. We need to have more faith in this too, even though we don't like it, that it will mobilize us to be more concerned about souls. Uh, I remember, I'll, I'll tell you this story, I'm almost done here, but I'll tell you this story, I've told this before, I can remember when one day we were getting our driveway blacktopped at our house and the crew was out there, so I went out and started talking to them about the Lord, and one of the guys I was talking to about the Lord, you could just, if you've ever been a soul winner, you, you can just see conviction all over someone's face, you can literally see it physically on their face at times if you know what I mean. And I could see the Lord was working on him. And finally I got to the end and I, I wanted to encourage him, would you like to trust in Christ as your Savior? And he said, Pastor Cole. He said, thanks for sharing that with me. But he said this, he says, if I did that, I would have to give up women on the weekend. And I'm not ready to do that. So he said to me. And that ended the conversation. This is what Jesus is talking about right here. If your eye offends you, it's better to pluck it off, pluck one out and go into heaven with one eye than both eyes being cast into hell. And whatever your lust is or desire is, there's people who know before they're saved that if they get saved, that's got to go. Or that's got to go. Or that's got to go. And that's what Jesus is saying here. That's what Jesus is saying. He says, there is nothing worth holding on to that will keep you from being saved. And going to hell with that, I don't know if that guy ever got saved. I don't know. I have no idea. But can you imagine that? He liked to party with the women on the weekends. He, worked, he said, I work all weekend, all week long so I can be with the women on the weekend. And that's what kept him from coming to Christ as his Savior. I hope he gets saved. Because when it talks about their worm dieth not, there's some people that believe that refers to the mind. I don't know. Some people believe the brain was once called the worm because it looks like a big worm all wound up. But I do know from other scriptures like Luke chapter number 16 that memory never leaves the damned. And for all of eternity... That man would remember standing on my lawn, hearing with me, pleading with him to trust Christ as his Savior. And he said, no, I'm not ready to give up women yet. That would torment him forever and ever. And I don't know who you are tonight or why you're here, but there is no good reason to not trust in Christ as your Savior. There's, no good, there's a lot of dumb reasons, but there's no good reason. Do not trust in Christ.
You say, well, I'd have to give this up, or I'd have to give this up, or I'd have to give this up. Jesus said it'd be better if you chopped that off and got saved than to go to hell with it. Pretty extreme. But eternity's a long time. And the same word everlasting that is mentioned often in the Scriptures, everlasting life, is the same word that's called, used for everlasting damnation, everlasting destruction, everlasting fire. It never ends. And there is no good reason. There's no good reason. There are a lot of dumb reasons, but there's no good reason why a person should not trust in Christ as their Savior. How shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? We're going to end there tonight. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes for prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for lessons we've learned tonight from your word. Help us, Lord, because we can have those little petty jealousies and envies that these adult men had. And we can be intolerant of, of others. And Lord, I have seen some Baptists be intolerant of others. And Lord, even others who use different Bibles, and we, we, we hope they find the right Bible sometime in their life. But some of them are as sincere as the day is long maybe even more sincere than we are. And they love you, Lord, and you know their hearts, and they're doing your work in our communities, making a difference in lives. Help us, Lord, I pray, if we want to be great, just to be so small, we work with children, try and convert them to Christ. Help us to never cause one to stumble to never be the reason that they began a life of sin because we introduced it to them. Lord, others will do that, but help us not to be the ones. God, give us grace to be careful what we do and say and what children see us do or say. We pray, Lord, about these verses about hell and how you said cut your hand off, cut your foot off, take your eye out, do whatever you got to do to get saved. But don't let anything of your flesh, don't let anything of your body keep you from coming to Christ. And so, Lord, we pray for everybody here tonight. And as our heads are bowed, our eyes are closed, if you're here tonight and you've never come to Christ and, and been saved, you can be born again. And He'll give you a new nature. But some people fear coming to Him because they may have to give up this or that, but hell is not worth it. That thing is not worth going to hell over. That's what Jesus is teaching. There's no soft way to skirt around these verses. Won't you be saved tonight by trusting in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and believing in Him with all your heart? Believe what? What we read at the beginning, that He was going to go and be killed and rise the third day. And He was killed on a cross for us. Our sins were laid on his body and he was nailed to the cross in our place. He paid the wages of sin, which is death, for us so we wouldn't have to. He took our place on death row as our substitute, as our sacrifice. And he shed his blood and he did rise from the grave. He's alive forevermore and you know it because he's speaking to your heart tonight. 
And if you'll call on him tonight in faith, in repentance, he will save you. Nothing's worth keeping you from Christ. Nothing. And so if you'll take Christ as your Savior tonight, right where you're sitting, would you just pray and express the desire of your heart? Maybe it would be with words like this. Maybe you could say to God, Dear Heavenly Father, I do ask your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to come into my heart and save me from sin and from hell. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for dying for all of my sins upon the cross and shedding your blood to wash them all away so my record could be clean and I can go to heaven when I die. Please give me the gift of eternal life. Save me tonight, Lord Jesus, I pray. As our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed, if that's the desire of your heart tonight, and you've expressed that to God, and you meant it, you believed and trusted in the Lord, I'm not going to call you out or anything or come and talk to you or anything, but I'd just like to know about your decision tonight. Would you just raise your hand real quick and take it down and say, God knows my heart. God bless you. Amen. Is there anyone else? God knows my heart tonight. I've asked the Lord to save me. God bless you too. Amen. Anyone else? Father, help us tonight as believers in Christ to be affected. Help me to be so much more affected by the words of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, and what He said about the fire that cannot be quenched and how desperately people should, as Jesus said, strive to enter in. No matter what it means, even giving up, not that we're saved by works, but But he was saying, don't let anything keep you from heaven. And Lord, help us to affect us as believers that we'd be soul winners with a greater burden for the loss than what we have. Now dismiss us tonight with thy blessing. Help those that have received Christ to follow on with the Lord now and learn more about him. And bless our fellowship, camp going on this week, vacation Bible school. The next three days at Countryside, Lord, save precious souls. Help me as I speak to the men in Lancaster on Saturday and bless the soul-winning conference and the ice cream social, all these things coming up, the Lord's Day with Singles Day. Lord, we just pray you'd use these just as tools to bring somebody to your Son, Jesus Christ. And we pray this in His precious name. Amen. Amen. We appreciate you attending tonight.